0: If you're going to describe God in one word, what would it be? I guess the most popular answer would be that God is love. And that's true. And actually that's from 1 John as well. In fact, 1 John uh, chapter 4 verse 8. Anyone who does not know God doesn't sorry, does not love, does not know God because God is love. That's what it says. But it's not all that John has to say with these one-word statements about God. He quite likes these sort of pithy things to tell you something really deep about who God is. So John three thirty three, God is true. John four twenty four, God is spirit. And here in one John, God is light. God is light. I nearly had this as one of the pictures from the Bible in our series on on that uh, for the children's talks. But God is light. In Him, says John is no darkness at all. He tells us, in fact, uh, in our passage, that it's not his message, it's the message that he proclaims from him. So John uh, chapter one, verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's the message. But what does it mean that God is light? Well, let's start with the easy one, because I uh, have made mistakes like this in the past when I was a bit younger. Um, When it says that God is light, it's not saying that God doesn't weigh much. It's not that kind of light that we're talking about. It's more like the light bulb lighthouse variety of light. And light in the Bible has two big meanings. Light as knowledge, and so therefore darkness as ignorance. And light as purity, and therefore darkness as evil. Now, almost it's almost certainly the second one that we're talking about here from what follows on. We're talking about here as light, as pure sinlessness. God's blazing, blinding, awesome holiness is what he's talking about. Even the apostle Paul calls this sort of thing an unapproachable light, he says, and talks of the God whom no one has seen or can see. It's the idea of the light being blinding, like the sun. If you you look directly at the sun, then you you, you blind yourself, wouldn't you? I remember a few years ago. I don't know if anyone else remembers the nineteen ninety nine solar eclipse. Uh, a few friends and I travelled down to Cornwall to go see it, and all the newspapers had these devices that you could use to sort of you know reflect the light in, so you didn't have to look directly at the sun, but you could watch it go past. Because whilst the sun gives light to everything else, actually it's so blindingly bright that you can't look directly at it. And that's really the idea that it's got here. God is light, pure light. He alone is pure and holy. A sinless purity that contains no darkness, no evil. And John wants us to know this. He starts off with this statement just to start us off to understand who God is. Because he wants us to know, what does it mean to be a follower of the one who is this blinding, pure, holy God? What does it look like to follow him? Well, John spells out the implications of those who follow this God who is blindingly pure light. There's just two this morning. The first one is that there's no such thing as a sinful Christian. There's no such thing as a sinful Christian. Let me read to you verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now I want to clarify straight away what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Christians don't sin. I'm not saying Christians aren't sinners. What I am saying is that a Christian's life and moral behaviour will be different from what it was before. If you are a true believer, if you're a Christian, your life will have changed. You've moved from one thing to another. And this is a wake-up call to that group that we mentioned last week. We said that there are a group reading this who think that they're believers, but really aren't. And last week we saw that there were going to be tests to sort of see whether you were in fellowship with John, whether you were really in. Last week was the historical test. Do you believe in the real historical Jesus who died for your sins? Well, this week is the moral test. Has your life changed as a result? That's what John is asking. Has your life changed as a result? Because there are people out there in the world who would say that they are Christians, but if you look at their lives, you'd never know it. They're still walking in darkness. They're no different to how they were before. But before we start go thinking of other people out there, notice John doesn't say if they have walk in darkness, they don't have fellowship. He says if we, if we say we have fellowship. He doesn't want us to look out there. He wants us to look in here, at our own hearts. If we claim to be a Christian, then it needs to show In our lives. If we claim to have fellowship with light, we should be living in the light, not in darkness. Because the same gospel that saves us changes us. If we claim to be a Christian, we cannot carry on in a sinful lifestyle. We can no longer live in darkness. But then what does that phrase to live in darkness mean? Well, I've been thinking about it this week, and I think there's three groups, really, that fall into this category of walking or living in darkness. The first one had to do with hidden darkness. Now, I was at university when this sort of thing struck me for the first time. There was a friend of mine, always active in the Christian Union. He was always there, went to church every week. He ended up being a small group leader and was picked by the committee to be the next CU president. He really seemed to be going for it. But he turned it down. He couldn't cope with the contradiction anymore because actually out of sight of the guys at CU and out of the sight of the guys at church, he was actually heavily involved in heavy drugs outside of uh, people seeing. He couldn't cope with it anymore, so he quit the CU, quit church, quit uni. As far as I know, he never came back. He claimed to have fellowship with God and yet was secretly walking in darkness. In my years as a student worker, there were people who were secretly sleeping with their boyfriends and girlfriends. They were leading double lives, one at church, one at college. John is saying you cannot do this. That is not to say that those sorts of things are unforgivable, not at all. Blood of Christ can cover any sin. Everyone makes mistakes, and believers can fall into these traps too. I'm equally not saying that everyone who has sinned in a bad way is not a believer. The Bible shows plenty of people, doesn't it, if you read through the pages who mess up in all sorts of different ways. And after they've become believers. But each time, afterwards, they repent. They turn back to God. It's the continuing in that double life that's the problem. It's the persistence of sin without seeming to care. Walking in darkness is an active, ongoing thing. It's a lifestyle that shows no sign of faith or repentance. And that was the problem here. So that's the first one, a sort of hidden darkness. Um, The second one is plain sight darkness. There are churches where walking in darkness is tolerated. I remember, again, same situation. Of course, there's all sorts of different things, aren't there? But I remember meeting a couple who were sleeping together but not married and they were doing a tour of churches trying to find a church that would accept them, that would let them in without challenging them on it. The church I was at wouldn't let them in, so they carried on looking around, and eventually they found one that they were accepted in that wouldn't pick up on this at all. The church was fine with them, claiming to be a believer, and yet doing this openly. I've known the same with people who've committed adultery. The church tries to bring someone to church discipline to try and help them come to their senses about it. They leave and another church welcomes them with open arms. Let's pray, brothers and sisters, that we don't go down that line at our church. We want to be a church that grows, don't we, but not like that, not at the expense of the truth. And not at the expense of those poor souls. Because actually they're being told that they can carry on in sin and that actually Christ doesn't care. We've got people who may be unbelievers, but they'll never know in this life because the church they're going to says that what they're doing is fine. Now, I know it sounds loving, it sounds caring to say, oh, it doesn't matter. But it isn't. It does matter because it might be a sign that you're on the wrong side, that you're not in fellowship with God, that you're not in fellowship with the apostles and John and the rest of the church. Isn't it better to know that now? Before you meet God and face judgment Isn't it kinder to give a chance to sort things out now To repent and turn to God Rather than to deceive them into hell They say don't they The road to hell is paved with good intentions But it's not just the people who are doing those things It's actually our good intentions sometimes By not speaking out When professing believers carry on In a sinful lifestyle now, that is not to say for any, any second that we should bar the doors and sort of only allow perfect people uh, in. More of that in a minute. But it does mean that we care enough about sin in ourselves and in each other to care enough not to pretend that it doesn't matter, that we're fine to live in darkness and profess to be in light. So that's the second kind of darkness. The third one is hiding in plain sight darkness. There are people I've known in churches over the years, very sadly, who are just downright nasty. Sure, they're there every Sunday, they're there every Bible study, but they're petty, vindictive, selfish, and show nothing of the character of Christ, nothing of the fruit of the Spirit. Yet there's no blatant, obvious sin to point at. It's not like the sort of in, uh, people who are out there, if you like. In fact, they're normally the ones who are pointing out sin in other people. That tends to be, from what my experience, what they tend to be like. But this can just as much be walking in darkness. Absence of light is darkness, isn't it? But no one picks this group up on it normally. The impression is given as long as you turn up, everything is fine. But it isn't. But it's hard, isn't it? We're supposed to walk in light. We're supposed to be lights of the world, said Jesus. But let's face it, most of us are like those old style energy saving light bulbs. Do you remember them? They've got better now. You know what I mean? You switch them on and you come back after 10 minutes. You're still not quite sure whether it's on. And you know, you come back after two hours and it's maybe got up to full strength, you know? But they, if they never come on, if the light bulb never has any light, if there's no glow, Then you have to conclude that it's not a light bulb, that it's not working. John's point is that if there is no light, if there is no change, how can we claim fellowship with the light if we have no light? And this again comes back to what fellowship is it's not friendship, but sharing a mission together. You can be friends in one sense with somebody who's very different, can't you? Opposites attract, they say. And you know, I've I've been friends with people who are very very different from me. But fellowship is harder. Because you can't be on a mission with God who is light on a mission to bring light and be walking in darkness. It doesn't work. It makes no sense. It would be like Darth Maul on Star Wars being on the light side of the force but continuing to work for the dark side. In what sense, then, is he on the light side? In what sense is he in the fellowship of the Jedi? No, he's lying to himself. Isn't he? He's pulling in a completely different direction. They're not on the same team. Otherwise, they would be doing the same things. So if we are doing the same things, if we're walking in the light as he is in the light, then that shows us that we're on the same team. It shows us that we're in fellowship with him, the true light, we're to walk in the light as he is in the light. And as we do that, it brings us into fellowship with one another. A fellowship of light. Shining his light together. A community of believers. A city on a hill, Jesus talked about. That idea of shining out. Lights in a dark world. That, that only works if we're shining. If we're living in the light. As we do that, we share a mission, we have fellowship, not just with God, but with each other. We're a team who's pulling in the same direction, going the same place. And that shows us that our faith is genuine, that we're the real deal. And if our faith is genuine, then we can know that the blood of Christ cleanses us from every sin. That's what he says there, isn't it? The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Is the point though isn't it What's coming If we need cleansing It shows us this is not talking about Sinless perfection is it Because we still need cleansing from sin More of that in a minute But you can see how this is different From those who walk in darkness Who say they are believers But pull in a different direction They might also say The blood of Jesus cleanses me But they mean it as an excuse for sin You know what I mean they treat Jesus' death as a license to sin rather than a reason not to. Who treat Jesus as a trampoline to jump on than a safety net to fall into if we need to. Do we ever find ourselves thinking when we're tempted to sin like this, I'm okay to do this because Jesus died for it. That's okay, he died for things like this, so I'm okay. Rather than, I'm not okay to do this because Jesus died for this. See the difference? So John here flips it round and says, no, if you're walking in the light, if you have genuine faith that is changing your life, then you can say that the blood of Jesus cleanses you. What a perversion to use the blood of Christ as an excuse for the very sin that he shed his blood to deal with. Jesus died to end sin, not to enable sin. There's no such thing, says John, as a sinful Christian whose life is as full of sin as before with no change. But that's not all John has to say on this, thankfully. John gives us the flip side too before we sink into despair and think that we must be perfect. Because the second implication is that there's no such thing as a sinless Christian. Verses 8 to 10, let me read them to you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If verses 6 and 7 were aimed at those who were sure that they were believers but aren't, then this is those who are unsure they're believers but are. Verses 6 and 7 that we just looked at before could be devastating, couldn't they, by themselves? But John wants us to assure us, not to terrify us. All Christians, without exception, sin. I am a sinner. I sin. The person sat next to you is a sinner, and they sin. And the person sat behind you, unless you're on the back row or if you're on the sofa at home, is also a sinner, and they sin. But there's a difference between being a sinner and being sinful. As one of my old pastors in Lancaster used to say, sheep sometimes fall into the mud, but pigs wallow in it. All Christians fall into sin. But there's a difference between falling into sin and walking in sin. We'll explore that in a minute. But apparently there were some people in John's day who claimed not just that they were not sinful, but they were sinless. Now that is fairly... uh, uh, not uh, fairly common amongst unbelievers. Someone very close to me used to say whenever I mentioned about sin, he would say, well, I've never done anything to harm anyone, meaning that he got no sin to be dealt with. But it's seemingly sometimes believers actually need this sorting out in their mind as well. It's the spirit in the sky effect. Do you know that song, The Spirit in the Sky? It's got this line in it. Gareth Gates did it a few years. It's been done several times by different groups. Doctor and the medics? Anyway. Um, it says this in it. I'm not a sinner. I've never sinned. I've got a friend in Jesus. Think about that for a second. I'm not a sinner. I've never sinned. I've got a friend in Jesus. Well, that's exactly what these people are saying in this passage. So this is why we don't get our theology from pop songs, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> most of the time. Because um, it's just plain nonsense, isn't it? John's point is that Jesus is not in fellowship with people who claim they don't sin. He's not in fellowship with people who claim that they're not sinners. Listen to what a real Christian says. This is Paul in 1 Timothy. He said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's what Paul thinks of himself. The worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. So I think we know that generally. We know that nobody's perfect, don't we? But do we subtly teach a sort of functional perfectionism in church? What I mean by that is do we act or expect that certain people in church don't sin? The church globally has been rocked by quite a few well-known figures who it turns out have sinned on a pretty dramatic scale. They've been all over the secular newspapers as well as the Christian ones as well. Now, on the one hand, we want to say that these people have done some truly awful awful things, and they have, believe me. And actually, I think with some of them, it does put them in that category of walking in darkness, in secret. But on the other hand, do we expect our leaders to be perfect? The only time we tend to hear about leaders sinning is when it's something dramatic, isn't it? And they have to leave ministry. I hope you know that leaders sin. Not because it's something to glory in, but because it means that if you're a Christian who struggles with sin, you're normal. It's not that there's some extra super spiritual class of Christian. My qualification as a pastor is not that I am sinless, but that I fight sin in my life. And some days I fail, and some days I do better with God's help. But I'm not some sort of guru is it, who sort of attained some state of perfection and is now showing you the way to go to get there. We're actually all here to help each other fight, aren't we? So we need to let our practice and expectations match our theology. We know everybody is a sinner. So let's not give the impression that we're, we expect sinless perfection of others. But actually let's fight sin together as a team, as a church, as a fellowship, as a family we were talking about earlier. So how do we fight sin? Well, John tells us here, doesn't he? Verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We confess it. We confess our sins. See, this theme of light and darkness goes all the way through this passage. Sin thrives in darkness. And one of the things that light does is expose it. Part of walking in the light is an exposure of our sin. Notice as well here what it doesn't say. It doesn't say if we're good, he'll forgive. It doesn't say if you try hard, he'll forgive. It doesn't say if you recite a prayer 10 times, he'll forgive. It says if we confess our sins. That's what we need to do. But what do we mean by confess our sins? Well, firstly, note that it's plural, Sins. When the Bible speaks about sin in the singular, it normally means our sinful nature, the the thing that makes us a sinner. Sin in the plural is normally specific actions, thoughts, words, that's what's in mind with, with that. I think as evangelicals, we're better at confessing sin than we are at confessing sins. We pray a lot, don't we, that we're sinners and we ask forgiveness, but we're not great at sort of spelling it out, are we? We don't own up to specific things. And there is a scary factor to that, isn't there? Could you imagine uh, someone at church saying, you know, oh yes, I'm a sinner. And someone else saying to them, oh, how? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What have you done? (laughs) Again, what would you say if someone said that to you? my, my, um, My inclination would be to go before I was a Christian and tell them something that I did then. I wouldn't generally tell them something that I'm struggling with now. That's what we tend to do, we don't confess our ongoing sin, we tend to confess sin. And we, we seem to be happy with that, but here it says sins, if we confess our sins. Secondly, note it says confess, not say sorry for. Confession is not quite the same as apologising. The word here in Greek is homo logomen, homo the same, lego to speak, to, to speak the same word. It's really to agree to acknowledge verbally. That's how it's translated, actually, about half the times in the Bible. So, Matthew 10, Luke 12, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 13. It's just translated acknowledge. So, it's not really a religious word, but confess. Immediately, as soon as you say that, it's a religious word, isn't it? To confess your sins, then, is to verbally acknowledge your sins. To say yes, I did that, and yes, it was a sin. When public figures are caught doing something wrong nowadays, they apologise, don't they? But it's rare that they actually acknowledge that they've done something wrong. Look out for this as you, you hear the next apology, it'll be sometime soon. You know, I'm very sorry if my comments were perceived to be offensive. I'm very sorry that people were upset at what I did. See? I'm very sorry that my actions were interpreted in that particular way, but I meant them in a different way. So what they're actually saying, I didn't do anything wrong. They, they've just been interpreted that way, they've been perceived that way. They never actually say, I've done something wrong, or very, very rarely. But that's not acknowledging sin, actually. That's sort of confession without any acknowledgement. Or think right back to the beginning, Adam and Eve. When God confronts them, they don't really confess either, do they? They don't verbally acknowledge their sin. They blame each other. They even blame God, this woman who you gave me. They admit the action, because it's blatantly obvious that they've done it, but they don't acknowledge that it was sin. They try and pass the book. But when it comes to sin, we need to call a spade a spade. No excuses, no blame game. When we acknowledge it as sin, we can deal with it as sin. Actually saying it out loud can actually be helpful. Saying it in your head that that was a sin can be helpful. But that brings up the tricky question, do we need to say it out loud? Who do we confess it to? Who do we acknowledge it to? A couple of weeks ago, I showed a Roman Catholic primary school around the building and they got to ask me lots of different questions. And one of the questions the children wanted to know is does your church do confession? Well, how would you answer that? Does your church do confession? You see, you see, the issue is that by the 1500s, the church had formalised confession into a sacrament, where you went into a confessional and you confessed to a priest. We don't find that idea in the Bible. There is confession of sin when someone brings sacrifices in the Old Testament, but there's no suggestion it's sort of secret and to the side to the priest. It was more likely that it was a public confession. As a reaction to that confession, that the reformers rightly emphasise that we're to confess our sins directly to God, which is good and right, and we should. And that's one of the things that it's talking about here. But the New Testament, though, does tell us, command us, in fact, to confess our sins to one another. So this is James five sixteen. It's on the back of your notice sheets. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's very few commands in the Bible To actually pray for one another This is, this is a, the sort of biggest one you get We're very good at the praying for one another Aren't we? We do it at virtually every meeting But what about confession? And in context too When it says to pray for one another It's in light of the fact That you've just confessed to one another It's prayer for forgiveness It's prayer for help in the fight If we confess our sins It brings them out into the open To be dealt with and that is another way that we can fight. Do you know that that's what the original small groups were? So, you know we have like life groups or small, everyone's into small groups, aren't they? The original ones, it was the Methodists, and they got together and called themselves uh, experience groups. And they would ask each other questions about sin and how they were doing in their faith. Now don't worry, I am not suggesting that we turn home groups into some sort of interrogation uh, of each other. I don't think they'd last very long, would they? But could we do it with someone, someone that we trust? Could we talk to someone and get help? See, the Roman Catholics have confession wrong with a confessional and all that stuff. But I prefer the way they do it to the way that we don't. At least they're confessing regularly to someone who can pray for them. At least sin is not allowed to fester in the dark, they have to name it. So confess to God, yes. But don't neglect the resource of the church that God has given you to actually help you in the fight. So, our church does do confession, but we could do it better, couldn't we? And when we confess our sins to Him and to others as well, He'll forgive us. That's what it says He'll forgive us. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will forgive us. Not by ignoring our sin, not by sweeping it under the carpet. But dealing with it justly, he's faithful and just, the mechanics of which we'll see next week. But he doesn't compromise his stance on sin when he forgives us. He doesn't change his nature or his opinion on sin so that we can be forgiven. Sin faces the full force of God's anger, but if we're believers, then that anger is aimed at the cross. There's nothing special about confession as though it were magic words, The power comes from the cross of Christ, from his death as a sacrifice for us, more of this next week. But for now, what are we to take from this morning? Well, if you say you are a believer, you must be fighting sin in your life. Your life must be morally different from what it was before. If it's no different, then I can give you no assurance that you're a believer this morning. You need to turn back to God and confess your sin to him. Turn from it, repent of it, whatever that sin is. Whether it turns out that's for the first time or whether you're just coming back to God after a period of time, it doesn't matter because the the answer is the same. Turn back to God. That's the right response, whatever the case. Tell someone that you trust so that they can pray for you and help you come back. But if you're a believer this morning, but you're unsure, then take assurance from what John says. There is no such thing as a sinless Christian. And Christians who are sure, we shouldn't give that impression, should we? Only God is pure light. So keep confessing your sins. Keep walking in the light as he is in the light. And if we confess, God will forgive. It's a promise God made and sealed in the blood of Jesus. And we can know that that's true because of that other one word that John uses to describe God, true. So don't carry on in darkness. Don't make out that you're sinless. And keep trusting. Let's pray. Father God, there's been some hard stuff this morning. Father, we pray that if we are walking in darkness, Father, help us to turn turn to you and walk in the light. Father, not by just trying to be better, but by looking to the cross. And Father, if we're struggling with assurance this morning that we uh, could be forgiven, Father, help us to remember that it doesn't depend on us, but on your truthfulness. And you say here that you're faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. Father, pray that you'd steady our faith and help us to grow in you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.